Welcome to the Qualified Tutor Podcast. I'm your host, Ludo Miller, and I'll be interviewing tutors and thought leaders from across the tutoring landscape to inspire, inform, and motivate you to become the best tutor you can be. The Qualified Tutor Community is a safe and supportive space for tutors who love to learn and grow. We offer training, resources, ideas, and a chance to connect with like-minded tutors. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join our Qualified Tutor Community at www.qualifiedtutorcommunity.org or find it in the show notes. Welcome to the next episode of the Qualified Tutor Podcast. Today we are joined by uh, Mary Myatt and of course by uh, wonderful QT founder Julia Silver. Uh, Mary speaks for students and, and school leaders uh, pulling out practical ways in which we can alter the approach that schools take and to to maximise learning, to maximise personal and academic development for all those involved. Um, Mary is is, is proposing an improved school curriculum um, in which greater greater background knowledge is taught to children, which then allows them to learn for themselves. Combined with teaching through stories, children will learn more deeply, uh, forming connected and and long-term memories. Perhaps Mary has some good stories for us today as well. Mary, we have a huge respect for the work you do and are very, very grateful for you for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed. Delighted to have the chance to chat with you. Thank you. What does the, uh, what does the return to school period brought for you, Mary? Well, um, normally um, I'd be back to back with uh, conferences, doing work in schools, and but with the current situation, um, I've only been into two schools so far this term face to face, and the rest of it is online, and it's now just back to back online. Um, so, I mean, that does have its benefits, is in that you can uh, actually squeeze in more um, and. Uh, there is a lot of demand out there for sensible conversations about the curriculum and our processes in the educational sector. Um, but the downside is, is missing the vibe of being um, in a room full of people and interacting with them. So um, it's twofold, really. Mm-hmm. Yes. Zoom rooms just aren't really the same thing, are they? <laughs> so, Mary, we'd, we'd love to start with this question, which you, if you've heard our podcast before, then you, you may have heard us asking. What kind of student were you, Mary? And and did you ever have a tutor? Well, um, it's going to sound a bit geeky, but I I enjoyed school uh, and I enjoyed learning uh, and I enjoyed finding out new things for myself. Um, I have to say it wasn't until the sixth form that I really felt that we were given our heads um, as girls to really explore and debate and really wrestle with big material. Up until then, we were expected to be compliant and just take down the notes that, for the most part, were dictated to us. And so I think there were lots of missed opportunities for getting the best out of us, um, you know, when we were um, lower down the school. Um, In terms of having a tutor, so when I was in the last year of my primary school, um, my parents sent me for some lessons on a Saturday morning just to learn some French. Um, so it wasn't for the 11 plus or anything like that. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And that stood me in good stead. And then the other thing that I had, which was aligned with tutoring, um, but not, not, not exactly that, was that um, the summer before my O-levels, because I'm that ancient, um, 
no, the spring before my O-levels, um, my German teacher had said uh, that there was a week's intensive course um, at King's College in London uh, designed for people doing their O-levels stroke GCSEs. And I found that absolutely brilliant. Uh, just loved getting in really, really deep and some fine, some fine lecturing on the back of that. And I would only have been 15, but it made a big impression on me. Yeah, clearly, I think. But we often have uh, guests talking about those really early tutoring experiences they had and how that kind of shaped the way they approached education really from that point, even if it was just a couple of sessions. I know Julia often talks about, was it Mrs. Fisher, Julia? You had, well remembered Ludo that's one point to Ludo um, so Mary could you tell us a, a little bit about your new book uh, Back on Track um, well it's it's um, addressing what I see as the uh, need for the sector to look at some of the processes uh, that I think uh, are getting in the way of us doing our best work um, so my view is, is that the educational sector is quite conservative um, and it has a tendency to think because a process has been done over the years, therefore it's always got to be done. And the problem with that, <clears throat> there are two issues really. One is that I think by and large those involved in education are um, always keen to do their best work, work incredibly hard for pupils and students. And so there's this temptation just to keep on adding more and more. And I think leaders can sometimes be guilty of this as well. Now, it's not universal, but I think across the sector, this is the case. It's just um, more that we've got to do. And what I'm arguing is, is that we need to go back to uh, working out what we need to do to have the greatest impact for our pupils and students. And with the latest inspection framework and the quality of education judgment, there is overwhelming evidence that a high quality curriculum, carefully thought through and sequenced, um, underpinned by um, the research that we've got coming out of cognitive science, um, is going to make the greatest difference for the greatest number of pupils. Now, in order to do that work, we've got to trim a lot of other stuff. And so um, that's at the heart of the argument I'm making and back on track. Um, but I draw on sort of wider leadership thinking in order to do this. So Greg McCown's essentialism work, um, the Pareto 80-20 rule, uh, William Morris's work saying, uh, you know, we shouldn't have anything in our homes that we don't know to be useful and believe to be beautiful. And so I'm, I'm, I'm coalescing these ideas together to try and make a strong case for cutting back radically those things which are not adding value to children's learning. So that's the heart of it. Yeah, that's... Uh... Uh, really an excellent kind of a path to to forge and really something that is so key at this time isn't it you know especially um with trying to refine kind of as children's learning kind of uh when it's been stripped back and when there's so much that they've lost in this time now Uh, sorry i'm just going to i'm just going to come um back and expand on that a bit yeah so i think um the result of lockdown has meant that um, a lot of schools, a lot of people working in education um, are now taking a fresh look at what is essential and what isn't. But uh, I think one of the 
interesting pieces of work that's come out of the analysis of what's happened with loss of education in the past. So this is John Hattie's work. Um, he's found when they analysed um, what happened with children um, after Hurricane Katrina and also after um, the Christchurch earthquake, where there was significant loss of educational time, that actually the following year that public exams were taken, the results went up. Remarkably, they went up. And then they went back to their normal levels in subsequent years. And Hattie puts this down to the fact that those who were supporting the children on whatever kind of program, either in or out of school, were focusing on what the children knew and didn't know. And so really identifying misconceptions and gaps and, and filling those in a very purposeful way, primarily through conversations with children that meant that the learning became much more efficient because, I mean, I'm afraid to say there is time wasted in schools filling in, um, you know, low-level worksheets and things like that. But when we strip that out and start really, um, really having high-quality conversations in lessons, we can move the learning on really quickly. So I think there's some quite interesting and encouraging stuff to reflect on in that example. It's a fascinating example. I know that um, in school we do tend to get entrenched, don't we? Um, we just get used to our systems and routines. Um, and having been disruptive, disrupted is a fantastic opportunity to go back to the drawing board and ask what we do and don't do. We've certainly seen in our youngest children in school a lot of readiness. And we did, yeah, and so they're going back, they're, they'll just pick it up more quickly. Um, and, and there is, of course, a lot of work to be done around anxiety because we're not through the coronavirus pandemic yet. So there's a lot of support to be done in that. And what's actually happening is that we're being forced to be more responsive than we usually are. And we talk about, we talk about in Qualified Tutor about how really the magic of tutoring is in the responsiveness. You're able to be responsive in a one-to-one or a small group setting. Um, you're much more nimble. So, so that's what we're seeing. That's what we're talking about at a tutoring level, but, but also in, in terms of our own mindset to just sort of have been pushed out of our box and find new ways to follow through on, you have this lovely phrase, don't you, moral purpose. And we talk in Qualified Tutor about finding your why, about Synex's approach of finding your why. And if we can go right back to the vision of what our why is as educators, and then be responsive to the students in front of us. Um, it's not a surprise that, you know, that, 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 that some wonderful things could happen. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Go ahead, Lido. Well, kind of on that, a similar theme of uh, how we have perhaps linked, uh, you know, the kind of quality pedagogical research out there into the course that we've written, it's mainly down to uh, Julia and Adrian Conway's years of fanatical reading of, 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 of you know, <laughs> educationists like Dylan Williams and yourself. And, and, Very and, my and, and, and <laughs> um, There are two uh, key themes in your previous books, High Challenge, Low Threat and, and the Curriculum, um, that we refer to quite centrally in our, in our qualification of tutors, our, our four-part course. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit more about High Challenge, Low Threat and about why tutors, how and why tutors can support students' development of a powerful architecture of, of knowledge. 
Right. So the the thinking behind high challenge, low threat um, is that um, I'm making the case that we are a challenge seeking species, that we like doing things that are difficult um, as long as the conditions are right. So just to give um, a quick analogy of, of um, how this might work, is I would say to say to you both that in the next few minutes, the three of us would be sitting an unseen, unprepared for test. We'd just crack on and do it. It'd be quite short. We just complete it and then take a bit of a break. During that time, it would be marked. And then we would be ranked between the three of us of how we'd done in that unseen, unprepared for test. So <laughs> Julia's putting a thumbs down sign. I've got to go, <laughs> sorry. My stomach hurts. <laughs> and, and Ludo, um, you're ambivalent. So when I do this with large groups of people, we tend to find that most people are reluctant, but will go along with the idea of this unseen, unprepared for test. But when we realize we're going to be ranked, then that's when the stress levels and the discomfort for 90% of us, because I've done this uh, score t- uh, over 25,000 times, um, uh, a huge portion of us feel very uncomfortable. About 10% of people are fine with it because there's a small minority of people who get a bit of an adrenaline rush. But for the most part, we feel very unsettled by this. Now, when you unpack it and you talk to the people, they say, all right for the test, but it's that moment of being judged that is... Um, really damaging psychologically. Now, interestingly, um, I'm going to do less well in the test because I'm, if I know that, I'm going to be worrying, well, how am I going to compare with my peers rather than focusing on the job in hand? But yet, on the other hand, we have a significant proportion of the population that by way of relaxation will do things like word puzzles, crossword puzzles, Sudoku, that sort of thing. And I'm arguing they're a form of test Now, they're not literally a test, but they do share some of the same features of a test in that what we're doing there is we're putting ourselves under cognitive pressure to do something quite difficult by way of relaxation and in our own time. Now, I happen to do quite a lot of Sudoku. And what I found is I've mastered the easy and the moderate ones, and I'm now tackling the difficult ones. Every now and then I'll go back and give myself a break by doing one of the easier ones. And what I find is, is that I don't get the same sense of satisfaction or pleasure from completing that that I do from the more difficult ones. And what's happening there is we get a rush of dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone, which we um, get when we've achieved something we've had to put that bit of effort into. Um, it's not been immediately obvious. And then when we get there, we, we have this, um, this deep sense of pleasure. So what's critical here is that I'm arguing that we like doing things that are difficult. We're a challenge-seeking species as long as there's no potential for anyone to make us feel stupid or like a Muppet. So I've got to be careful because the Muppets do good work on Sesame Street, but none of us (laughs) in that situation. Um, So the, the goal to be moving towards, there are two threads I'm arguing from this. One is the fact that we like doing difficult work, that's whether we're adults or whether we're children, but the conditions have got to be right. So there must be no shame or fear in getting something wrong or making mistakes. Indeed, those are springboards for new learning. Um, And the second thread in that is that we need to be critiquing the work rather than the human being, the work rather than the human being. And so the case I'm making in high challenge, low threat, my work around that is that... um, 
we can actually take on greater cognitive demands, whether we're adults or children, than we currently think, as long as that atmosphere is totally supportive, totally encouraging, totally challenging in the right way. And there's lots of things that feed into that. Um, radical candor, Kim Scott's radical candor. Um, it's possible to be both robust and kind. So there's lots of threads sitting around that um, and underpinned by trust. Um, so where that leads then in terms of children um, learning things in uh, rich knowledge in the long-term memory, um, I think it's quite interesting just by way of introduction to that part of your question is that um, one of the threads of the new inspection framework and the quality of education judgment within schools um, is ambition. So it's the first time that ambition has been uh, included in, um, in a framework. So one of the things we need to ask ourselves is, is what we're offering our children sufficiently ambitious uh, to really stretch them? Um, now, the work that I've done around this in terms of children wanting to be stretched, they say they want more demanding work. And I think as a sector, we're inclined to make too many things too easy for too many of our children. Um, they're craving to do interesting, difficult work. And there's a very nice excerpt from um, Alison Peacock's book, who I know you've um, recently done a podcast with, um, her book, Assessment for Learning, without levels, which came out in 2015. And she and a colleague were interviewing some children as they were going from year five into year six, and they were asking them what they thought of ability tables. Um, but actually the children's responses were about provision. And um, so the, the top group liked being the bright ones and having special challenges set by the teacher. The middle group liked the sound of some of the challenges the top group had, but they knew they'd never get the chance because there were only six seats on the top table. The bottom group were, um, uh, were really discouraged. They usually work with a teaching assistant and this less able group wanted to try the more demanding work, but they knew they would never get the chance. So I see this repeated again and again, children love doing difficult work. The, the, the fundamental thing that needs to be in place beyond the high challenge, low threat, is they need to be successful quite early on. So there's a lovely piece of research um, which came out of Sussex University, and I, I, I think you probably heard me speak about this before, Julia, that um, uh, where um, these were students in year eight, um, quite a small scale study where uh, of about 360 students uh, in a number of schools, the year eights, um, and they were taught in their English lessons, um, two novels, they, they were working through two novels, which would normally be at least a year above their, what they'd be studying. So challenging work. And um, in their English lessons for 12 weeks, that's all they did. They read these novels quickly and at a fast pace and discussed them no written work expected during this. It was just getting through the material and talking about it. Um, at the end of that 12 weeks, they found the whole cohort's reading ages had improved by eight and a half months. For the weaker readers, it was 12 months. And the research paper that sits with this, two very interesting things um, come out. When you talk to the children, when they talk to the children about the, the poorer readers, about why they'd done so well, they talked about how they were able to get into the story in a way they're never normally offered this stuff. And so they just loved getting into this 
this big meaty material. And they said, we didn't need to understand every word because we could talk about what we did and didn't understand. So the crucial thing there was that the children were offered, all of them, material above their pay grade, but for the weak, all of them, but in particular the weaker readers, they felt a sense of um, accomplishment and success quite early on. Now, that is an incredible internal motivator. If I feel, oh, I can have a crack at this. Oh, I've done okay. I'm going to want to do more. So I think there's some important in, um, psychological insights there. The second is that um, uh, that struck up for me from, from this research was that the teachers were surprised at how those weaker readers had done. And I just think that is a damning indictment of our low expectations of what we can expect from our children. You know, we talk the talk of, you know, we're ambitious for all our kids. If we're not giving them ambitious stuff, it's not going to happen. Um, so just the final thing I would say, um, Ludo, in relation to, you know, securing things in the long-term memory and rich knowledge, et cetera. I'll just give a quick example because it ties these threads together. But a lot of the work I've been doing around rich vocabulary, rich texts, tier two and tier three vocabulary. So the tier three, that subject specific vocabulary that sits within the individual domains. Um, generally, um, they're big words, they're not used in everyday life. And quite often they've got roots in other languages, quite often Latin and Greek. So when we teach children how to get to the roots of, their wo of those words, um, like isosceles, for instance, Isos means equal, skeles means legs. They've got a bigger mental picture of what an isosceles triangle is rather than just parroting back the definition. Now, the interesting thing is that the schools that have been working with this, developing children's vocabulary in this kind of very active and expansive way, very light touch from a teacher's point of view, just show them how to look up the words plus etymology on Google. It throws it up. Set some of that for homework. Talk about it next lesson. What they're finding is it's the children with the greatest language deficit and making the greatest gains. And when they talk to the children about that, you know, why they're getting on so well with them, why they appear to be enjoying it so much, they say, well, we enjoy being clever. We f like finding out this stuff. So that then taps back into the fact we're a challenge-seeking species. We like doing things that are difficult. And so it's kind of joyous when we get this loop going. And so that's, right. um, that's it, really, in a not very tight nutshell. <laughs> I'm, I'm bubbling with responses, and I'm going to go backwards. Um, when I when I attended your course recently, which I enjoyed so much just before lockdown, you showed us or you mentioned to us a video of Austin's butterfly. And just that message of the teachers were happy with the first butterfly that Austin made. But once you nudge the student to improve and improve and improve his butterfly, the year one butterfly comes out as a year six butterfly. Because the student had so much more to give. He's just used to a situation where everything is procedural. Finish the sheet, move on to the next sheet, draw another animal. <laughs> so so that, that opportunity to give students to lean into their work and expect more from themselves is, I think, you know, I was teaching year five this week, maths, and I said to them, did you feel learning? Where did you feel learning? And giving them the metacognitive skills to find that moment in their own experience, to reflect on what learning feels like, that's what we want our tutors to be giving students so that they can go back into the classroom and find that joy for themselves. So you, you mentioned deep work, and I, I I'm into audiobooks. And just as an aside, um, 
we've been, my kids have been listening to audiobooks. They were very difficult. So I have Thomas the Tank Engine and, and Winnie the Pooh and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and everything in between. And what's amazing about that is that I've unlocked language for them higher than their pay grade. So they weren't able to read the books, but they were able to access the literature and therefore the books become that much more accessible. And that's something that I would recommend to anyone because it's so comfortable to enjoy an audio book. Um, and then the other area of that was deep work. So to think about your high challenge, low threat, and then to think about, about deep work as a space that is calm and quiet for you to really focus on your work and not get distracted by pings and peers. Um, then you can, you teach children to concentrate and you know, you think about Graham Nuttall's work about the, the, the secret life of the classroom and how distracting it is and how we're so much more focused on what the children around us are doing than the teacher in front of us. And all of those distractions mean that we're not really able to concentrate. So what we feel, and we had a fascinating conversation with, um, with an agency leader and a school leader who were talking about what happens when tutors go into schools and how there's a halo effect that as the, as the students discover what learning feels like and have this crucial connection between effort and success, they take it back into the classroom and it has a knock-on effect way beyond the math intervention that they've received. So, so we think that there's something that we can do here to help students find that deep space of learning so that it can put them on their feet and help them to get into that virtuous loop that you mentioned. Uh, yes, I agree. And um, I don't think we can underestimate the level of distractions that there are for children nowadays. So I think this is an element of uh, the cog uh, metacognitive work that needs to go on talking about this. And it's not that it's all bad, but if that's all we do, then what are we missing out on? So um, there's a lot of evidence that reading for 30 minutes a day does all sorts of good things for us, both emotionally, psychologically, intellectually. Um, and so um, we, we need to create and model the time and the space to do that because, you know, it's no one um, will say, you know, do as I do, do as I say, not do as I do. We've, we've got to be modeling this ourselves and talking about it and children seeing us do it. Um, and I think that's an investment in time. And so I think whether it is within a classroom setting and lots of secondary schools are doing this now where there is dedicated reading time, where actually the teacher is reading aloud to the class or the class are reading just quietly on their own. That needs quite a lot of management, saying, making sure that they're not reading um, stuff they could have read in primary schools. But, you know, when that's done well, it's done really well. Um, and I would argue in smaller groups as well or in tutoring situations that if we think this is an issue, then we invest 10 or 15 minutes where the tutor and the child or the small group, we are just reading in silence because children have got to experience it um, so that they then know how worthwhile it is. So your point about leaning in, I think, is a really important one. They've got to be supported to lean in. Um, and that's when the magic, the magic happens. Now, I think you've got to be quite brave to make a decision to do that because 
tutoring um, comes with a cost. Everything comes with a cost. And there is sometimes this sense that I've got to pursue content coverage, what I call the curse of content coverage, when actually something slightly different is needed. And I would argue something like this, where it's been identified that that could be holding children back, is an investment in, the t- in, in long-term benefits for children, even though it doesn't look as though we're doing something. We are. It's deep work on there. <laughs> this week's podcast um, is a feedback from a cohort that completed the course two weeks ago. And one of the tutors there was saying that she was working with a dyslexic child And whenever, and she was teaching her English, and so it was heavy work for the child. And whenever she felt the student's energy flagging, she'd just give her a break. And she'd let the student decide if it's going to be a 15 or a five minute break. And by giving the student that agency, by the time the student finished with her, she said she was going to be an author when she grows up. Because because she helped her find the joy in it and took the slog out of it. Um, So we speak to our tutors very much about on the one hand, to be ambitious with, with allowing them to access, access content and, and, and surprise themselves with how much they can cover academically, but to be much more responsive. We talk about being a thermostat rather than a thermometer, where you're leading the tone and creating the culture so that your student can be successful as a learner because you don't have the limitations of crowd control that the teacher is always encumbered with. Yeah, I think that notion of a thermostat rather than a uh, temperature control is a really, really helpful analogy. Yes, I'm going to reflect on that. Really, really good. <laughs> I think that I think from Seth Godin. Oh, he's I'm a big great. fan. Of Seth. Yes. he's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I love educationalist. Well, he's, he's actually less of an educationalist, isn't he? More of a marketer. Just before you you take us to the next question, Ludo, um, I just want to share with you, Mary, that I love that you reference who you read. Because tutors have to be pulling on these threads and, and they're not in the habit of thinking about professional development in the same way that teachers are taught to think about professional development. But professional reading for tutors will be just as valuable as it is for teachers, which you argue and Dylan Williams also argues that um, that's the differentiating factor between people who are improving and not. So we talk about reassessment where we teach tutors to reflect on their own effectiveness um, and take that forward and take responsibility for that. So the reading that you can do, for example, in the Chartered College website, where there's just a treasure house of lovely blogs to, and webinars to binge on, um, can make all the difference to outcomes for students. Um, I agree, absolutely. And it's incredibly good value. I'm actually arguing that um, everyone in school, uh, every school should have at least one person who signed up to the Chartered College and that that is paid for by the school. If um, a lot of the colleagues you're working with will be self-employed, but you can set that against income. So again, nil nil net cost to you. I, I just don't think as a sector, we can afford not to be tapping into that. Why wouldn't That's we? Right. It's all been so beautifully created to the highest standards, beautifully produced. And right. so um, I, I mention it in every session that I speak at. Yeah, I've noticed. It's a joy to be a part of. It really is. So we have a 20% discount for people who, students who complete our course have a 20% discount as professional affiliates of the Chartered College, which is a pleasure to be able to announce. And now a brief word from our founder, Julia Silver. 
like to hear more about the ideas we touch on here or gain the tools to take your own tutoring to the next level, the qualification for tutors could be for you. This live online seminar is facilitated by industry experts who, over four Zoom workshops, will cover the foundations of teaching and learning and how it relates to you as a tutor. The workshops are full of rich discussions where you'll learn alongside other tutors and connect on a professional level. We will teach you how to be the kind of tutor every child remembers. Visit our community space at qualifiedtutorcommunity.org and sign up now for our transformative course. We'll see you there. I love the conversations that veer towards tutoring. That's, uh, that's certainly where I'm coming from. I've, I've never, uh, I'm not a teacher myself, I'm a tutor. And it's amazing to see kind of all these, this books and this research about teaching and drawing that towards tutoring because obviously the, the national tutoring program and, and a general trend towards deploying tutors in the best way possible in schools means that the literature on tutoring is 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 really is expanding and growing and becoming something that tutors themselves feel they can read rather than being out of the reach of tutors because we've previously been seen as a kind of part-time job and therefore no real exploration of what we're doing boo so <laughs> Uh, Mary, I'd like to ask what do you think, I don't know how much headspace the, the NTP has taken up for you, but I'd like to ask what you think the best case scenario for the NTP will be and, and what we might need to do in order to get there. Um, well, I have to say that when um, this was first mooted in the summer by Robert Helfen, who chairs the Education Committee, it was a big thumbs up for me, because all the evidence is, is that for those children who have seriously fallen behind, uh, small group or one-on-one -on -one tutoring makes, does make a huge difference. And um, so I am pleased that um, this funding has been made available. Um, what I hope is that, and I'm sure it will be the case, that most schools will use this wisely. Um, what I haven't um, had any um, insights into is the availability of suitably qualified tutors to do this work. So um, I, th I think there's been some wider discussions about that and who might tap into becoming part of the accredited program. It might not be as strong as that. So that um, the demand is met um, for this is met by the supply of um, strong, suitable people to do this work. But overall, I think it is one of the better pieces that's come out of the department and I'm sure at the prompting of, of Robert Halfen and his and his committee. It's lovely to hear the optimism and as you know we're working very hard on making sure that there's plenty of well-qualified tutors but tell us about the tell us about the pitfalls of tutors sort of arriving in schools and and how they need to navigate and how schools need to um, adjust to make space for them. Um, so beyond the um, kind of safeguarding stuff that needs to sit behind all this and those processes, um, et cetera, um, the obligations on the schools are to provide the background um, information. And I don't mean necessarily hard data because we know that uh, that's all been distorted by the, um, uh, by the, by the lockdown. 
but a thumbnail sketch of why this child or this group of children need additional support and not just generic support um but if you know it's as basic as decoding then making sure that um anyone going into school knows what the um you know the if they're going into support sort of phonics work higher up the school you know what are the phonics programs that have been used before so there does need to be a bit of an investment of time from the part of the school to um, gather that evidence light touch evidence so that um, anyone coming in to support those children is not flying blind on the part of the tutor going in um, I think you really have to um, behave as um, a guest so how would a good guest behave in terms of being as pleasant as possible to everyone we come into contact with um it can be nerve-wracking but always assume the best of people i mean your colleagues will know schools are frantically busy places but um so if things go slightly wrong then just assume it's you know just because <laughs> you know life happens um but to come in with genuine curiosity and willingness to help, which I'm sure is a hallmark of the way your colleagues work in, in any case. Um, and to, to think about those things about meeting the child where they are, but then moving them on as swiftly as possible. Because what we don't want to happen is children to get locked into intervention so that too long, it's got to be as efficient, as purposeful as uh, possible so that they're back with their peers experiencing a broader curriculum. So some of the things that play into that, if the child or the group of children must never feel as though they're a deficit model. And even if they've been made to feel that by casual comments they've heard in school, the tutor has got an opportunity to counter that by saying, you know, I'm just delighted to work with you. It's just going to be really, really purposeful. You look like a great group. So lots of affirmation to begin with. And, um, and also just sort of asking them how they feel about school generally. This can be done quite quickly. Um, and what I find interesting is when you talk to children and they're not having a great experience in school, that kind of doesn't matter for the work I'm then going to do. They just like the fact someone has asked them. <laughs> and anyway, the fact is they are in school because they're, they're really, if they're really not doing well in school, you know, they, they're very good at absenting themselves. The fact that they're even in the room um, is a good thing. But you, you get some really quite in, good insights into where the child is coming from. And then you can frame some of the conversations around that. Um, and particularly if they say, you know, well, I really don't like reading. If we're focusing on that, I really don't like maths. And then you get some success early on. You're then able to say, listen, you were saying last session, you could now look what you can do. So there's subtle um, growth mindset underpinning what the, what the tutors do. But I'm sure you have all those conversations and structures in place for your colleagues anyway. We certainly do, but I love that phrase of being a guest. So we talk about the seven keys of professionalism, to be polite and punctual and presentable and positive and consistent, and a few more keys as well. Um, but I, 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 think that, um, I think that the guest, the guest needs to be all of those things as well. And, and also being able to roll with the punches when the timetable flips. And, you know, especially if bubbles are going to be closing because... Uh, you know, coronavirus hit this pocket of the school or that pocket of the school. There's going to be all sorts of flexibility that has to go alongside your persistence and your ambition and your commitment in order for you to be able to work in a school. Yeah, exactly. And I think what goes a long way in that is if you were to arrive uh, intending to do some work with one child or group of children, and that lot you find have been bundled off to self-isolate, it 
you create a huge amount of goodwill. Say, well, I'm obviously not needed for them. Is there anywhere else that um, might not have been identified, but, you know, my time is here, that would be helpful just to work with a child or a small group of children for that time instead. Now, quite often that won't be taken up because they might have other things in place. But my goodness, the goodwill that goes sitting behind that, because what we want is... Um, the relationship between the professionals, so the, the professionals within the school setting and the and the um, your colleagues who are visiting, to be as fruitful as as possible. That's right. That's really right. That's just glorious to give tutors that permission to understand the school context in that way and be be contributors. Yeah, that will give Ludo keep going our tutors massive confidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. they've been treated. To something pretty special in the last couple of weeks with, with Dame Allison and, and now hearing this from you, uh, Mary, I think it's it's a scary thought for a tutor to go into a school and work alongside teachers and work in the school environment because we're not trained to do that. Um, in fact, until now, we weren't trained to do anything because we've never been trained. But there was, we, we, we're not taught uh, how to work alongside teachers. And I think it's really very reassuring to hear that uh, there is a system to do this, there is a way of working alongside them, and that you know that, that there should be no fear to working alongside teachers because you know really good teachers are ones who are happy to to collaborate and work with others because you know education isn't it's not a competition. Uh, well, unfortunately, it is at the moment in terms of the way our system's set up, but it's not a competition. Um, so, the, you know, for me, that, that it's, it's very uh, reassuring to hear this, but also for those tutors that, that we that we serve and in our community and, and that are able to access this kind of this dialogue it's um really very positive um now adrian conway who sadly can't join us uh, today but who was with us last week uh, when we spoke to dame allison uh came up with this 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 wonderful question to really challenge dame allison to, 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 to kind of to delve into the depths of her mind to to think about the wider picture now, we asked Dame Allison this question, if you could wave a magic wand over the educational landscape, what would you see? And she came up with a response that talked about how she'd like schools to be a place where there can be no limits on what students can achieve. So I'm afraid, Mary, that that answer is taken. But <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand over the educational landscape, what would you see? So if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that every professional involved in children's learning had access to the high quality evidence from the cognitive science that really makes a difference to children's learning, which is why I so rate Alison's book. Um, so, for instance, I am going to be doing an interview this afternoon. So I'm just looking to p- pull it up, a recording uh, myself, by which time I will have put some makeup on. Um, uh, with um, the, oh, it's, 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 yes, 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 yes. Just yes. come out. So this is Zoe and Mark Enser's generative uh, learning in action. Now, what we've got here is not just that, but all the other work that's been coming out from Willingham, from Brown, from Lamov, um, from Nuttall over the years, uh, is a, a gold mine which is not yet in, available to every member 
um, of the professional community. So that would be what I would want my magic wand to do. Um, I'm actually working on addressing some of that uh, now um, to make things absolutely available to anyone and everyone. And linked to that, I would take it further. I would um, strip out in the performance appraisal systems anything to do with teacher performance related to numbers and data completely distorts professional practice. And what we know that the schools that are doing the best work and individuals as well who are really motoring in their own professional practice and thinking is that they're engaged in this work. And it's not that we take it lock, stock and barrel. We take the attitude um, that, that Dylan William has. We, we, we pick the best bets for our contexts and the great thing that happens in sectors, in parts of the sector where this is happening, there are significant gains in children's learning and it reduces workload. Now, it's that way round. We want to have the greatest possible impact on children's learning, but a byproduct is, is that it significantly reduces workload. And so that's why I just think it's so important. And that's why I endorse so much what um, Alison and her colleagues are doing at the Chartered College. It's a small piece, isn't it, that will have a massive trickle effect. Will you talk to us about your, your new platform, the, the film? Yes. So, um, so I decided to develop a platform. I'd already got one for my own work um, where I couldn't get into schools or, or, or for bookings because there just wasn't enough time. And so um, those were, have been made available. But what I found during lockdown when I put out... Um, shorter films on just things like differentiation, things like um, use of questioning, is that people were absolutely um, just had a hunger for this material. It wasn't just mine. It was the research ed homework, um, homework uh, that they put out there, Um, Children Teaching School Alliance, uh, Seneca Learning, lots of um, organizations were putting material out and people were just thrilled to have it. So I had been intending to um, expand my own offer. And then I realized actually what would be better would be not just my own work, but others' work as well. So um, a, a, a separate um, platform, uh, which is dedicated to video on demand, is currently um, being created. And it's going to be launching in the next few weeks. We're calling it The Soak. And um, it's going to operate on a Netflix um uh, principle of um, short films for opening up discussions and um, resources to take it further if people want to. But I'm absolutely passionate about getting this out to anyone who needs it. So it's going to be no charge for uh, initial teacher trainers um, it's going and trainees. It's going to be no charge for newly qualified teachers. And also, no questions asked, anyone who is skint, um, it can just email in and say, and we'll, no questions, don't need any reasons, they will have um, a year's subscription. For those who can afford to pay, um, it's probably going to be about £8 a month, but I think the greatest um, demand is, is coming from, uh, in my conversations, is coming from schools and trusts, where we can bring that £8 down to a pound, uh, around a pound a month. So the, the aim is to get out... Um, uh, a huge range of material 
evergreen. It's going to be added to the whole time. And we're going to be launching uh, with about 70 films in a few weeks time. That's so so um, exciting. Quite, quite exciting. It might fall flat on its face, but there we are. <laughs> Mary, could you extend your, um, your initial teacher um, access to qualified tutors, please? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's another. Yeah. I tell you why, because as you were explaining it, I thought to myself, well, that's high challenge, low threat, isn't it? Being yeah. able to watch videos that will give me the food for thought in my own time and space yeah. will, um, will enrich my professional performance without making me feel that I have to be in a specific place at a high cost and be surrounded by people who may or may not know more than me. Exactly. Exactly. No, very happy to do that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Um, I think it's been a really fruitful 56 minutes. Yeah, that's not the first time that word's been used today. I'm so sorry that I, I joined you over five minutes later. Yeah. I, I, I oh, you're right, 51. And then I, I stopped calling. <laughs> there we go. Did we uh, cover everything, Mary? Was there anything else that you wanted to share with tutors before we wrap up? No, I would just affirm um, the work that you are doing in putting in place some structures to support their professional growth and accreditation. Really important work, Julia. And I would also say that um, the, uh, the difference that they're making to some of our most vulnerable children, and by vulnerability, I don't just mean um, poverty. These are just children who need additional kind, robust support. And so just to believe that what they do matters and it matters enormously. So I hope that's helpful. So glad I asked. And you joining us today will, will matter a lot to, to those tutors who then obviously pass on that knowledge, the, 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 the continuous learning cycle. Uh, thank you so much, Mary. That was really uh, an amazing uh, at 40 minutes um, I feel like I'm also a huge fan of Sudoku and actually I'm also challenging myself to to attack the kind of um, what do they call them super fiendish fiendish sorry super fiendish ones I feel like Sudoku is a hobby that doesn't get enough mainstream airtime or appreciation so thank you for bringing that <laughs> as well um, thank you Julia thank you Mary um, and really there's there's so much that our tutors can take from that I hope you enjoyed I hope you enjoyed talking about it. Really and read various books. That's the final thing. That's the final thing. Of course, Back, back on Track is uh, recently released uh, and there's a whole series before that as well. well. We'll be keeping all podcast listeners up to date on that. Thanks. Well, it's been a pleasure joining you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Bye, Mary. Thanks for listening to the Qualified Tutor Podcast where tutors share their expertise to support the tutoring community. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join our Qualified Tutor community at www.qualifiedtutorcommunity.org or find it in the show notes below. We exist to connect, share and learn with you because tutoring is a small job that makes a big difference.